This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. I'm very excited for today's episode with Cynthia Borjo. Cynthia is a modern-day mystic, Episcopal priest, and the author of many incredible books, including The Meaning of Mary Magdalene, which is somewhat of a classic. Her newest book, The Eye of the Heart, is what we'll focus on today. Since I put this book down, I have not stopped thinking or talking about it. Today, we talk through a question that I think comes forth for all of us at some point. Are we just irrelevant specks? Does our life actually have meaning? Cynthia explains the complex yet grounding teachings of the mystics Teilhard de Chardin and George Gurdjieff, like the idea of the cosmos and an order of worlds. We talk about the idea that qualities like joy, love, patience, compassion are not just virtues, they're energy packets. They're the food and nutrients that our planet needs because the lack of them causes things to go awry and get so harsh, a world that sounds pretty familiar. She is someone I've been eager to chat with for a long time. Her work is absolutely fascinating and feels particularly resonant and urgent in this moment. When human beings put into the atmosphere courage, love, compassion, forbearance, inclusivity, sanity, equanimity, we are actually physically, energetically altering the environment for good. We're feeding the planet. Okay, let's get to my chat with Cynthia Bourgeau. As we were discussing before we started recording, I have never prepared so many notes for a podcast. I think I rewrote your entire, both the meaning of Mary Magdalene and the eye of the heart. 
in notes because I fell into a black hole, really, of just trying to understand the universe. So thank you for that. Thanks for taking me on like an incredible odyssey. Great. Great. (laughs) Thanks for being willing to travel. Yeah, no, I'd read The Meaning of Mary Magdalene, and then I wanted to reread it and loved it as much again as I had as it touched me the first time. But then The Eye of the Heart feels like It's the next step. And I know you write about getting a powerful cosmic nudge in 2015 to dive into the work of, I'm going to butcher his name, Pierre Tejard de Chardin, and then Gurdjieff. So what happened? Well, uh, Gurdjieff had been in my hip pocket for a decade or so anyway. I found myself back in the 80s, actually, really kind of high and dry on the beach because the Christianity that I was a Christian minister about seemed to have some missing pieces. And through a set of experience chains, uh, I found my way to this inner teaching, which was an early run up on conscious presence and mindfulness. So I've been working on that in and on and off for 15 years or so anyway. The inner nudge came, I don't know exactly how. It started before another one, the eve of the presidential election in 2016. uh, I had a pretty strong nudge that told me how it was going to go, and it wasn't from reading political pundits. But there were like things that come that just say, do it. Don't ask why. Do it. And there was a sense that of do it about Teilhard, who wrote, you know, he was a French Jesuit, died in 1955. The Catholic Church forbade his writings to be published during the time of his life because he was, you know, it was a little bit too threatening to their, some of the mainstays of their theological foundations. But He was a a Jesuit and also a scientist whose specialty was in paleontology and the all ancient history of the earth going back for millions and millions of years. So he wrote his sort of magnum opus was the phenomenon of man as was originally published in English. The actual name, the human phenomenon, is actually closer to the French he called it. But it's this beautiful book that tells the universe story from 14 billion years and certainly the earth story from 4.5 billion years. Gives us a long view of evolution and yet weaves it beautifully together with kind of classic Christian mystical reference points that evolution, which has been happening from the get-go, is essentially under the hands of and in service of the ultimate revelation of love. And the epicenter of the whole thing is in is Christ. This was his own Christ mysticism. But it's a magnificent book, and it really invites us to, first of all, to realize that the whole cosmos is seamlessly one. He was saying all the way back in 1940, you know, when he first wrote this book, you cut one part, you've cut the whole thing. It's one Mm -hmm. seamless whole, and it hangs together by the whole of itself, which is what would later be called a self-specifying system. So, And he says it also works over incredibly long timetables. Evolution is a rise in consciousness, to its ultimate consummation and love, but it goes slowly. And you can have events where for 
10,000 years, civilization is set back. A comet hits the earth. There's an ice age. Boom, consciousness seems to go underground and disappear. We have to think in long, long scales and trust in long, long scales. So I started reading that. And then we had about nine months, 10 months, a year to work on it before we could begin to see that the earth was in for another pruning. And it was going to start in the political and cultural spectrum and spread. So in one sense, I wasn't surprised when the whole pandemic hit, because I would already through both Teilhard and the sense of cosmic nudges being all part of the game that I'd gotten from Gurdjieff, I realized we were facing something big and that we were going to have to really draw on resources deeper than white man's science or madman's theories to begin to orient ourselves and dig ourselves out. So you talk about weaving together these dialogical threads and so Teilhard and Gurdjieff, different schools of thought, but the same general understanding of the cosmos. Is that fair? Yeah, I think they have a very similar understanding of the cosmos, and it's a little bit different from what's in a lot of traditional religion. First of all, it's a dynamic cosmos. It's an evolutionary cosmos. It works on a long, long, long time scale, like think in in ages. And that within this, the general rise is, as Teilhard says, it's a rise in consciousness, but there are a lot of setbacks. And the human being, the side that comes in from the Gurdjieff side, is the human being has a very fragile grip on consciousness. And when conscious, and when he, the human being starts acting like an apex predator, like a like an enlightened animal, when when it begins to dominate and and terrorize the landscape, all sorts of wild destabilizations can happen. And in a sense, the it's the human lack of consciousness that has led in a way that has set up the situation in which our current pandemic is almost an inevitable outcome for essentially for the health of the cosmos. And the difference between Teilhard and Gurdjieff is that Teilhard is thinking mostly just about the physical planet, this earth, this solar system. Gurdjieff is thinking bigger, that he's thinking that there are many cosmoses, multiverses within multiverses, and that it is to save this whole thing, which includes both what you might call physical universes and what would traditionally have been called spiritual or we'll just call them spiritual universes. But they're all sort of involved in this great sort of dance of cosmic bootstrapping. And everybody's health depends on everybody else's. And when human beings have screwed up their planet, it's not just our planet that we're putting in jeopardy. It's other planets and other parts of this whole vast system that you might call, if you will like metaphors, the cosmic heart of God that are imperiled. And it's responding to try and save itself, but it's also sending us help that we have been by and large unable to process because most of the old mechanisms that download this help uh, have dried up in our human consciousness. We don't go to church anymore. We don't do religion. We, we're, we're all post-materialists. We don't understand what it means to receive assistance from above to give help 
from realms beyond our own. And we don't really understand the part that we have to play and the things that we could really be doing to help move us forward to get us back on track, as it were, in this journey toward the, the evolution of love, if you want to call it that. So these were some of the things that were really fermenting around in my mind as I wrote the, as I wrote the book, on, on, as I wrote Eye of the Heart, to say, is there a simple way not technical, not esoteric, not religious, not churchy, maybe clear, that could help people to get a wider picture on what it is that we're, you know, this invisible enemy we're shadow boxing with, and some of the things that we might be able to do to help. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. I love this idea as someone, as a seeker, as someone who's extremely interested in all of this, the what is consciousness, what's, who was Mary, all of these questions in real and spiritual ways, like this idea of the ray that Gurdjieff puts together, this idea that there's really no divide, this is in a line in your book, but rather a single continuum of energy manifesting in various degrees of subtlety or coarseness, but he divides it along with the musical scale in these different worlds, but that they're all sort of ornaments on a tree and that they're strung together in ways that are perceptible or not perceptible, but all very much interconnected. Yeah. So and interdependent. And I love this idea that because we obviously we grapple with this as humans. How are we irrelevant? Are we irrelevant specs? Does our life actually have meaning? And then our desire to be so literal about like, where do we physically go? What happens to us? But this theory puts us in a context of not being the center of everything, certainly, but of having importance or having the ability to influence in a more significant way that I thought was really beautiful and actually pretty easy to understand. Like for the first time, I was like, this really actually makes sense. Yeah. So I was excited. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole idea of there being a great chain of being is, you know, it's kind of classic, what they call Sophia Perinus, the ancient perennial religion. But what Gurdjieff did to this that made it so interesting and revolutionary is he turned the thing into a, essentially a mutual bootstrapping system or feedback loop that most of the early theories that from Plato and, you know, the great Islamic philosophers and the Hindus and all of those are basically basically like redshift 
that there's this great divine ball of fire and intention right at the center, and it throws universes out, and they get darker and colder and more remote and more lost, and it finally all winds down into entropy. But Gurdjieff said, no, what happens is all these little universes, even our little material planets, our Earth, the moon, the other planets, are all feeding each other, giving and receiving and feeding and being fed. And it's through the exchange of energy at these junction points of feeding that the whole thing develops something that counteracts entropy and starts to feed back so it holds together. So that's the big theory, the idea that we do have something that we have to give back and pay back and that it really is food not only for our own realm, but for realms above. So how do you begin to point it to what it is without sounding old and churchy? I'm going to start by just jumping right (laughs) into it and saying there's a passage in the Bible in Galatians where St. Paul talks about something which he calls the fruits of the Spirit. And I can never remember them all. There are nine of them, but they're things like peace, joy, love, patience, gentleness, self-control, that's most of them. You get the drift. Did I say joy, uh, forgiveness, uh, compassion, love? These are the fruits of the Spirit. And most of us in this world would say, oh, yeah, yeah, they're virtues. Nice people have them. Saints have them. And they're virtues which are obviously in almost imperiled species in our world today, as more and more the opposites tend to play out in our planet. We see narcissism run rampant. We see fear run rampant. We see. But what Gurdjieff said clearly, and Teilhard said too, in his own sort of brilliant, intensive way, is these things aren't just virtues. They're not just nice little moral qualities. They're not just nouns. They are actually energy packets. They're food. And they're nutrients that our Mm -hmm. planet needs directly because the lack of them causes things to get so harsh and so desiccated and dry and barren and parched that you can't stand to live here. Craziness enters. And some of you may have seen the old cult movie Babette's Feast where Babette is this French gourmet chef who gets exiled in some bloodbath in Paris, winds up in a little Danish village where she becomes the cook for this these two old missionary sisters whose flock is falling apart because they're getting old and they're dispirited and they're helpless. And she, Babette, looks and she realizes that the element that's missing for them is just a sense of abundance. So she sets out to cook them this over-the-top French feast, and she succeeds. She so gives them the nutrient of abundance and joy and the sense that life is good and trustworthy and plentiful again, that they can actually go back and reclaim their faith that had almost been lost to them. And so in exactly this sort of way, when human beings put into the atmosphere courage, love, compassion, forbearance, inclusivity, sanity, equanimity. We are actually physically, energetically altering the environment for good. We're feeding the planet. When we put into the environment fear, suspicion, alienation, 
scapegoating, terror, isolation, hatred of the stranger, we're actually putting into the world toxins. And greed is a major mm-hmm. toxin. When we plow the land under to build a new shopping mall or something like that, we're not just destroying nature. We're putting the energy, the stench of greed into the planet. And these things actually have their effect. They destroy and they disturb the universe and the balance as much as the shopping center itself. What we're called to do is human beings are the great transformers of the outer appearance of things, the releasers of the virtues into actual energy packets that feed and are fed. And we're going to be putting out energies whether we like it or not. The question is whether we put out the ones that, that feed, that help, that nurture, that build up, or whether we put out the ones that poison, that drive the whole thing lower and lower, that drive us into mass suicide, that drive us into craziness. So it's been in an environment of at least, I don't know where you want to start counting, 500 years ago, 200 years ago, 100 years ago, but we've been in this skyrocketing, breathless, greed, self-protection, isolation, absolute refusal to die, terror of any risk. Safety is the biggest word where we used to think that the, the human meaning was about holiness or sanctity or courage or goodness. It's now about safety. And we don't realize this is having a tremendous effect on the health of our planet and planets below us and worlds above us. Where do you think that this, I've certainly have sensed this particularly with COVID, but before that, this idea of I could die, right? Like we're all gripped by that. Not all of us, but many of us are gripped by that. Where do you think it came from? I think it's been a slowly gathering neurosis in the human condition for a long, long time. And I would say that I'm as at variance with my liberal friends as with my conservative friends, probably even more so with my liberal friends than with my conservative friends. I think we've become terrified. And a lot of this has to do with philosophically, with the whole philosophical climate of postmodernism. We've been taught that we're random pieces of a stray universe that got here by accident. We have no particular importance. We've tended as a culture to lose our faith in traditional religious teaching, which held out to this the promise of an afterlife that nowadays for most modern people, heaven and hell have as much uh, scare value as uh, the tooth fairy or Santa Claus. So that means that everything gets stacked into, you just got to take this 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years of life you got and just, this is all I got. So we get really protective of it. And we also have allowed the concept of the self to be totally defined by by psychological models for whom the self is the egoic self and the true self is a high-functioning ego, a me that knows how to get its needs met, that knows how to get its needs met without affronting other people. So we've narrowed the grounds considerably for ourselves. We've also, we've almost painted ourselves into a corner. And I would say it's very interesting to me that fear, absolute fear, is a lot more endemic 
among the privileged classes than among the less privileged classes. And I think there's some interesting reasons for that. But there's this absolute sense, you will not take my life away from me. And we've seen it been growing. I actually put a lot of the start of this, I don't even know if you were born by then, but remember that Tylenol trauma back in, when was it, the 60s, when somebody put poison in Tylenol medication, and after that, the industry of plastic packaging began. We feel ourselves like somebody's going to take our life. Somebody's going to take our life and nobody's going to bail us out. Our life is all that we have. And and then there became the concern and it's a legitimate concern about being poisoned. But the rampant feature of most of the entitled Westerners is this absolute paranoid, I would call it neurotic refusal to die. But a lot of, I would say all of our core values of being human have their feet planted, at least intuitively, in the ground that has always been the characteristic of human consciousness, that there are values that are more profound than physical death, that we're all going to die anyway. It's just a matter of time, and and no matter what, whether we live for 60 years or 90, it's still a drop in the bucket of eons. It's a blink of the eye. But the traditional cultures, the traditional wisdom has all said that the values, that the energy we transform, that we convert into those fruits of the spirit, that peace, gentleness, joy, forbearance, courage, love, that these things somehow create a home for us that is beyond space-time. And while heaven and hell, we basically have reduced them to pretty magical concepts, they do speak of an ancient cosmic truth that we've only just lost our grip on. That when we act from an altruism that's larger than our own fear of death, we're able to really fully, for the first time, step forward as human beings and and operate in this world with equanimity and joy and love. And it's this absolute terror that has been caused by our terror of dying that I think is the power, which is, which is the real scourge that COVID is both exposing and holding over our heads. Yeah. No, that makes so much sense. I wasn't alive for Tylenol, but I certainly remember trick-or-treating and the fear of finding razors and whatnot, like that paranoia. It's so interesting. And I loved this idea that Gurdjieff puts out this idea of the conscious circle of humanity and then the worlds and this idea that sort of the Christic world or the Boda Vista world, whichever your worldview is, is world 12. Is that world 12 or yeah. 24? And that we're in word, we're world 48 is the best of human culture, right? Yep. And then we have a chance through the imaginal realm of world 24 or being able to engage with world 24 and then below us, is world 96, which is the formatory world where it's autopilot cliches, stereotypes, recycled opinions, etc. Will you explain that contract to us? Yeah, yeah. And without getting too technical, I, I find it's a really useful thing to, to treat it as a metaphor and a very interesting metaphor that allows us to see something very quickly. The other thing that Gurdjieff did was 
he numbered the worlds along this great chain of being, you know, and you've you've been alluding to that, Elise, with the worlds 12, 6, 24. What happened is they go, as they go out from center, from that divine com- implosion, they get, or explosion, they get denser and denser. And the number after the world is how many cosmic laws it's bound to. And they basically double after the first cut. So world three is three times more dense than world one, which is the unknowable heart of God, divine purposiveness. And we live down here in world 48, under 48 laws on good days, 96 laws on bad days. And when we fall into utter madness, we double again in this world. World 192. It gives us a wonderful way of seeing and sensing the the actual heft of these different grades of consciousness. That you can tell the difference just taking World 48, 96, and 192. And we can point out and we can see them in the culture. I would say World 48 is the world of thoughtful culture, uh, intelligent dialogue. Uh, thoughtful reflection. It's the world of the best of scholarship. It's the best of conversation. It's the world our beautiful declaration of independence and constitution were drawn up in, where culture means something, and thoughtful human beings respond to each other and listen to each other with with dignity. World 96 is the world we get up and work in every day in our planet. Uh, It's the world of polarization, slogans, formatory opinions, make America great again, you name it. It's slogan consciousness. And it's what we've allowed our world to devolve into today. It cannot possibly listen to another opinion because it can't even fathom another opinion. It's the quick repartee. World 192 lies right around the corner. And we've seen horrible signs of it already in the absolute madness and sickness that's taken over our political system in COVID trauma and terror and the actual meltdown of a strain of civilization that's, you know, we've got a 2,500-year legacy, and we may be at the end of it in this madness. So if you can accept those as the metaphors, then it allows us to begin to talk about the worlds above us. And you've raised World 12, World 20, and, and World 24 World 12 is, and you've absolutely nailed it. It's, it's for the Christians, it's the Christic, it's the heart of Christ, it's the mystical body of Christ. For the Buddhists, it would be the Bodhisattva consciousness. They both, I believe, are identical. They're the same thing. They're saying the same thing. They're the vision of the human beings bound to each other in a love. Uh, the Christians would call it Paschal love. It's the willingness uh, to die for your neighbor. It's For the Buddhists, it's the willingness to refuse personal enlightenment until all are enlightened. It's this unbreakable sense of solidarity, which is not duty, but it's because your heart feels just how preciously and seamlessly and profoundly interconnected we all are. Now, World 24 is in between them, and it's the world that I actually describe in my book, Eye of the Heart, and are spending most of the time talking about how if we could reconnect with this, that we would really be able to turn some things around on this planet. So it's not as intense as Christic love. If you've ever had a mystical experience, you're kind of a grease spot afterwards. Mostly, we just can't 
bear the love that exists and the goodness and the sacrifice of that world. But we can bear 24, which is the world of presence, of deep equanimity, of deep mindfulness, and of, as you said, the conscious circle of humanity, the place where we actively receive on this planet assistance from above, from what Christians would call the saints and the the rest of the traditions would call the enlightened ones, where we hand up our transformed gifts of goodness and love and forbearance and patience and devotion, and where we bring down onto our planet the benefits of faith, coherence, temperance, forgiveness, courage. It's a realm of very active interface between the visible and the invisible, between what the senses and the reason says is obvious and logical and sensible, and what the heart knows is good and true. Uh, It's the realm where the saints inhabit. It's the realm, it's the realm, uh, you referred earlier to my Mary Magdalene book, it's the realm that Jesus and Mary Magdalene hold down each of them one corner of it, ensuring a flow of loving care between the planets. Uh, And it's a realm from which we could receive and give back considerable resources to protect us, redirect us, and refashion us in this time of a planetary crisis. And you talk about it as the the subtitle of your book is A Spiritual Journey into the Imaginal Realm. And we've lost that word in our contemporary language and tried to conflate it with imagination. And you did a beautiful job of explaining it, but it's essentially where it's that, I guess we wouldn't even call it a cliff or a divide. It's really where things that we perceive in some ways, some through some sort of sense organ, maybe I guess our heart and our intuition, it's that c- connection potentially to people on the other side or whatever language you want to use, but it's there, they're trying to help us, right? To pull us up from the the entropy or the gravity heaviness exactly. of the lower. Exactly. Realms. Yes. You've got that. You've nailed that exactly. And remember, this is, they, these are all realms in that great cosmos. So it's not like these are, this is spiritual and the rest of this is physical. This is another realm that is part of the whole cosmic, intercosmic bootstrapping. And yes, it's lighter. And yes, they're trying to pull us up, not because they, they're stellar pillars of compassion, but because every bit is needed. And our earth and our human consciousness cannot be allowed to wander off course. If it wanders too far off course, there's not going to be much recourse except to sort of another ice age or something, set the whole thing back for a while and then start again. But if we can make mm. it through, there's so much on the other side. What's your theory of, is, is the idea that of holding this balance and keeping this, the material moving up and down, one world feeds another into eternity? Or are we working towards some sort of collective goal? Or is it just is? That's a very interesting question. Because time really only has functional meaning in this world and lower. From beyond, Mm -hmm. everything is eternity, which doesn't mean oh, we're finally here. It, it, it just means that, that time doesn't have its, linear time doesn't have its grip on us. So the moment you move into imaginal causality, you, you are in eternity, but that doesn't mean you've died and gone to heaven. It means that you've stepped out of one of the 48 laws that hold us down. 
to talk right. about this a little bit and to talk a little bit more specifically about how we could how we can help you know you brought up Teilhard de Chardin and he has a wonderful way that gets us thinking about this he says that the three cardinal virtues that are needed for for our interaction and what he calls the divine milieu which is really just our world reconnected with and interpenetrated with the imaginal he says the three are purity faith and consistency. But what he says about faith is that faith is not belief. He says, faith is an operative. Faith acts. And a person who has faith, Mm. it moves inside the surface of the hard surface of the earth to make things more subtle, more coherent, and more meaningful, so that it actually shifts outcomes by making the whole thing more malleable. Like when we even open so much as to say a different outcome may be possible, when we lean into something asking for what meaning can I find in it rather than help, how do I save my skin? We introduce a different thing. And what Teilhard was talking about there was exactly what I was saying earlier, that virtues in world 48 are in world 24 energies. They're actual substances. And we can reach up. Mm. And what we need to feed this world, I am absolutely convinced, is the missing element of courage. Uh, And if you want to play with the elements of things, courage, it comes from the French courage, which means the way of the heart. And we're living in terror. We're living in fear. And if we were able to step beyond that terror. And the Christians say, whether I live or die, I am the Lord's. To understand that when you live in virtue, you live in eternity. And to be a little calmer about the parameters, the Mm -hmm. linear parameters of our life, so we could step forward and start feeding the energy of courage into the planet. I think we would have reabsorbed the pandemic in six months. That's a kind of blanket statement to say, but I really believe it. I would want to make very clear that I'm not talking about a reckless courage or a sort of stupid magical courage. I'm a Christian, so God's not going to let me die. It's more that willingness, that deep willingness to understand that as as and when I die, I still belong to the all, and the all has a heart, and I participate in that heart because I participate in all worlds. And so it's a humble courage. It's a meek courage. It's a trusting courage. It's not this kind of, damn it, I'm going to just go out and defy it stuff. That's not courage. That's bullshit. And I love this idea. And you kicked off the conversation with you feeling this pull from the imaginal realm, I would presume, to start pulling all these dialogical threads together. And this idea you talk about, I love this phrase where you say individual, this this has happened throughout time individual firecrackers popping off all over the planet. So you were talking about these different times when we have a, a spiritual evolution. So Lao Tzu, the Buddha, the Old Testament wisdom literature, Pythagoras, like this confluence of wisdom, or I guess people in contact yeah. with the imaginal realm or masters, ascended masters, whatever you want to call it, and that you feel like potentially like that we're at a turning point, but that you feel like that's potentially that conscious circle is fomenting or happening again? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, of course, it's not, once again, our World 48 minds have trouble 
conceiving of this and the way we conceptualize it isn't quite true. We think of it like a 20 questions or there's a world out there and we have to make contact with it. In point of fact, we're embedded in it. It speaks in our heart and you don't have to go and find a secret brotherhood somewhere or a secret sisterhood. As soon as the heart clears and opens, you find that you are you're spontaneously and quietly in touch with all others at your level and with those protecting them. There's an old Hasidic myth that says the world is held on its orbit in any era by 36 conscious human beings who don't know each other and don't even know if they're one of the 36. But the quality of their work and the quality of their heart in and of itself rises like incense to connect and interpenetrate with all the others. So the whole thing about the imaginal presence is that it's non-localized. And that as we do our work, we don't have to form committees, we don't have to form movements, we don't even have to fully know who we are. We simply have to embody ourselves in the ground, uh, breathe deeply of our planetary air and open our hearts, and the connection is made. And, and just like I received those nudges not knowing where they came from, but having worked in this path for long enough to recognize them as nudges, so too, I think every one of us will be led to, Shakespeare has this wonderful word, will be severally led, which means each of us, by each of us in our own infinite precious particularity, will be led to what's to be done next in our own time and space, knowing that we're drawing our intelligence, our protection, and our equanimity from the whole. I love that. Thank you so much for your books and your time and your wisdom and for, I'm sure, being one of the 36 (laughs) holding us all up. I guess just in parting, do you feel optimistic or you brought up having equanimity? Do you, at this point, You don't seem particularly stressed. I think that would almost be antithetical to how you see the cosmos. But are you hopeful? I am ultimately hopeful that I'm not. It depends on where you set the benchmark for the hope. I'm not sure that this country is going to get it together by the time of the election. I don't know when this podcast is actually going to run, but we'll see. I have a strong sense that there is something that has got to be scrape, you know, there's a saying about you sometimes have to clean and open a wound so that it can finally bleed deeply enough to heal itself. I'm not sure with the bottom yet. I find liberal Mm. fear and liberal deceit posing as compassion still too high. I find reactionary recklessness still too high. Planet may need to go down. So I'm not thinking of any storybook turns. But I, I do have a very strong sense that inwardly the turn has happened and that there's the beginnings of a seed coming together. And it's coming on both sides of the political spectrum and of the economic and the entitlement spectrum, where there's a quorum of people that say, we can't live the way we've been living. And, and this means different things depending on which side of the spectrum you're in. But there's the realization that the excess, the narcissism, the self-imprisonment, the pace, the greed, the recklessness that we've been living with in the planet in an accelerating pace for the past 50 years has to stop. And that what's beginning to 
percolate out from it, I think from both sides, is a gut level reclamation that there are certain values that are so precious that dying for them is okay because living in their absence is living death. And as that kind of quiet resorting and reaffirmation of what is imperishable in the human spirit begins to take its place, no longer tied to uh, religious cattle prods and whips, but just out of a kind of evolving collective conscience. I think we have a chance. What would you charge each of us who want to be in contact with the imaginal realm, who want to move against the entropy? What's that call to action look like? I'd want to say that there's an interior dimension which is consistent for everybody and that there's an exterior dimension that varies regionally. And I want to be specific about that. Interiorly, it's the work of confronting your own personal terror of dying, really doing the work. Uh, and a lot of ways to, to do this is to simply through a meditation practice to sit quietly and to let go of the thinking, let go of the stories, let go of the, as my own practice of centering prayer has as its piece, consent to the presence and action of God. Other meditation paths will have different mantras, but it's the idea that as you sit in that space of meditation where you aren't thinking, as long as you're not thinking, as long as you're not stressing and obsessing, as long as you're breathing and being present deep in your body, you are living beyond that ego, which is the only part of you that's terrified. You get out of that and terror disappears. Spend a little time hanging out in that. Meditate, garden, if you can. And again, if you're in areas where this is at all possible, put your feet in the earth and breathe. Put your foot in the earth and mm -hmm. breathe. And so those are, I would say, is your basic interior disciplines. Slow down, take it easy, savor what is there. The classic spiritual hygiene practices of gratitude, equanimity, acceptance, all of these will help develop our ability to be courageous. Uh, so that's the inner one. I think the outer one depends a little bit about where we live geographically and whether you're in a COVID hotspot or not. I think that in places where we're not, the work really wants to begin of assimilating each other's being with safe distancing. When you've got six feet, 10 feet, when you've got the great open airs among you and God's, uh, God's great blue skies and the whole planetary earth to go and stand in it, take off the mass, breathe in consciously like a kind of Tonglin practice, the bruises practice, the pain body of our planet, mm -hmm. the pain body, breathe out your own courage, your own willingness and acceptance to be part of this great planetary thing. But I think collectively, with the help of assistance from other realms, we can begin to participate in a kind of intercosmic dialysis through our conscious breathing, through our standing in our simple skin and not allowing terror to go deeper in us, to neutralize the planetary atmosphere a little, to harmonize it, to take this COVID virus, 
which is a bit of the living reality of, of life, and reassimilate, reintegrate it into the planetary body, both materially, energetically, and certainly spiritually. It's courageous work, but I think it's work that can and does mm-hmm. help to calm and soothe. Be prudent. I want to insist on that, and don't push your envelope beyond what you're comfortable of, but push your envelope. And let's together breathe our planet back into life and put our foot in the dirt and our hands in the dirt and thank this beautiful planet that contains all things in a wonder we can't even imagine. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Cynthia Bergeau. For more from Cynthia, please check out her beautiful book, The Eye of the Heart. We also have many stories with her from back in the day on goop.com. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.